let me tell you how I got to this and where, where I'm coming from. So I was a young rabbinic student at uh, Yeshiva University. And um, once upon a time, to know how to, we'll come around, to know how to kill an animal and know how to, you most importantly, actually check the animal's insides for trephote was considered an essential rabbinic skill. So let me explain what that means. Um, there is, for an animal to be kosher, it needs to be killed in a specific way. We will talk about that. And it needs to have been declared a viable animal after the fact. Kind of if you do an autopsy, in a sense, on the animal after the fact. And if it had what they call a trefa, which means it had a wound or an internal blemish that, quote-unquote, would have killed them otherwise, so the animal's not kosher. Well, let's give it an argument's sake. Uh, if I were to kill a chicken, and it turns out the chicken had a gaping hole in its lung, or its heart, so even though I killed the animal properly, it still wouldn't be kosher. So once upon a time, this was considered an essential rabbinic skill. For you to become a rabbi, you needed to be intimately familiar with these laws. And in the subsequent years since then, it has really fallen into total disfavor. Now, there are Svartic rabbis in Israel, who are, and there's some in America also, who are tremendous experts in this. There's uh, one on the West Side who is an amazing expert on this, if anyone wants to really talk to someone who knows. And there's one in Queens also, who are unbelievable experts in this. But by the time I became a Smicha student, and so I finished in 2004, 2003, something like that, it was at the point where they barely tested you on Shlita, which is the laws of slaughtering an animal. You did not even know what a trefa was. Once upon a time, you had to know all of trefa. You didn't even know what a trefa was. You never saw the inside of an animal. And all you needed to know was the laws of meat and milk, pots and pans. And one of my teachers remarked as a joke, uh, the only meat I know comes in shrink wrap with a, with a sticker on it. And it didn't bother me per se. Although I will say that there was one rabbi, his rabbi's name is Ben Chaim, and he's like the Svartic rabbi in Yeshiva University. So I remember one time I had to ask him a question, and I walk into his Beit Midrash, and there is a lung on the desk, and he's pointing at and showing me what the lung And it was like, I, I, couldn't, I, I was like a walk into another world. Although, when my great-grandfather, who I'm named after, became a rabbi, that was his rabbinic education. But, but probably not in the classroom, right? Uh, no, in the classroom. Well, I mean, that was what they did. Yeah, that's how he learned. My grandfather was actually a shofate and a bodek. He knew how to yeah. do all this, and that's what he, that's why I'm named after him. I have a kiddush cup at home that I use on Shabbos. It says Rebbe Yaman Skidowski. He was my great-grandfather's who I'm named after. Anyway, but I left it for that. Then I started teaching in Hadar, and I don't know if anyone's ever been to Hadar, but one thing about Hadar is you're not allowed to eat anything ever. Okay? You're never allowed. There's no, there's no food allowed. You know, you're not, if anything was, and, and, and I had never heard of this. These, I never read the Omnivore's Dilemma. I never read Peter Singer. I never knew any of this stuff. But I would read some, eat some of the corn. I would get yelled at. I, would eat, I didn't know any of this. And I started to think about it and really think about it seriously. And I realized that, you know, there is a major ethical gap. I started figuring out what happens on a factory farm. I started to, you know, get involved with a lot of people who are at Adama, who are at Chazon, who are at all these different things. And all of a sudden, it was like a world that I didn't know existed, and there's also a world of Jewish texts and sensitivities that I was totally, totally unaware of. And it profoundly bothered me. It profoundly bothered me. But what it also profoundly bothered me was that I realized that I didn't really have a language. When I mean a language, I had never learned the Jewish sources. So I didn't have a language for that. I'm still working on that, so I was 
still working on that. I mean, I'm reading all the, you know, the, the material now, but I don't I didn't have a Jewish language to talk about it. And I realized that to change the way kosher consumers think about these issues would need a real paradigm shift. And I didn't know how to go about that. So this year, I attempted to learn how to become a shofet myself. And there's a lot of great stories I could tell you about that. I, because of what happened at work, I didn't get the chance to finish it. I'm trying to finish it now. But I learned, you know, I have the knife, I have the whatever. Yeah. I've been to Shlitas. I got a whole group of guys in Great Neck that do it every Thursday night in their backyard. They do sparrows and pheasant. Yeah, that's a whole story I'll tell you. I know that I don't want to, well, I don't want to take too much time. But the interesting thing about that was is that the guys I was learning with are not yeshiva educated. Some of them can't even read Hebrew. I don't think that, I mean, they've never seen actual Hebrew letters before. But they were so into it. These guys are, and at this point, they're experts in the laws of Shlita. And they, uh, they even made a, you know those aprons that the chefs wear? So they made ones. They made one up for me, supposedly, with an insignia that has a chicken's head, two Shlita knives, and it says, GNSS, Great Neck Shochtim Society, L'Havdil Be'Natamei to learn how to separate between what is pure and impure. And they have these things made up. They got a run on Victorinix, which is like a Swiss knife maker who started making Schlitten knife. So they started get, they got their own, and then they started, well, it's got a cross on it because it's Swiss, so how are we going to do with that? So they're going to knock the cross off. It's like a whole, a whole story. But that's where I was coming from as far as this goes. And a lot of the issues came to the forefront. So like I said before, so you guys, if I am working on trying to do a trip to Schlitten for Hadar and for Drisha, uh, I'll tell everyone when it is. I have a couple of shows then that are possible to do it. Because I did take the notion of actually taking, forget it, and the sustainability for sure, and also the ethical responsibility that if you're going to eat meat, you know, I should have some sort of ethical responsibility towards actually knowing what I'm, I've done. I don't know if you want to answer this now, but I would be interested in also here whether that impacted your, I mean, whether, whether learning to, 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 to do that um, altered your sense of, call it your... Um, ontological rabbi-ness rather than more in terms of Kohen. Part of it did. I will say one thing, and just again, this is part of the meta-issue. Part of the meta-issue, which, you know, we will not answer necessarily right now, but part of the meta-issue is, and again, if you read um, Jonathan Safran Fowler wrote that book called Eating Animals, which actually is an awful book. It was terrible. It was, I mean, actually, it was idiotic. Am I right? Yeah. It's, it was idiotic. I I mean, and he thinks he's going to take on Michael Pollan. That's a joke. I mean, but... But in that book, he points out quite accurately that the way they breed chickens now, the chickens are bred so that they are completely defenseless. Meaning, you want to kill a chicken, the chickens you buy, even, though, even if they walked around, they, you know, they're like so depressed. They're smoking cigarettes. They've got a black bray on. They just give it to me. You know? They literally don't fight back at all. Whereas like, I, and it was interesting to see. When these guys, when we were learning how to do shlita on chickens, the chickens don't put up any fight whatsoever. Whereas a partridge or a sparrow or a quail will put up a fight, will put up a turkey for sure, will put up a fight because they haven't bred it out of them yet, you know, because there's not enough consumption of it, which already, you know, is a whole other set of really. And what it means to make to to, to take the life right, but out the, of right, but yeah. to take the life out of the chicken. That's not the life, <laughs> right? But the interesting thing about like if you were to shut the chicken today, the chicken doesn't care. So, you know, I mean, not that he doesn't care. I'm saying the, the chicken doesn't. You know, just gives up. It's like they bred them to just not care. You know, what I mean? it's amazing. And like you know, like when you when you kind of think about that, it, it blew my mind. Like I, I couldn't believe it. Okay, so that's where we went. So what I'm going to do tonight, and what we're going to do tonight, is the following. Tonight we are going to talk about the idea of sa'ar ba'alei 
We're going to do it the next two weeks. So the first group th- thing we're going to try to start with tonight, and we'll do a couple things, maybe we'll have to finish next week also. So Tsar Balechaim means that there is a Torah prohibition, the rabbis assume, of causing harm to an animal. Okay? The Torah prohibits you to cause harm to an animal. So what we're going to talk about tonight is in a vacuum. What is this prohibition in a vacuum? What I mean by a vacuum is a vacuum of human concern. Meaning, next week we're going to see the real problematics of what do you do when there is a human concern, right? What is defined as a human concern? For example, just to think about this in the back of your mind, there is a rabbi who lives in B'nai Brak, a very famous rabbi named Shmuel Halevi Wozner, who's one of the great uh, rabbis in B'nai Brak today, a Hasidic rabbi. And they asked him about a practice that they do in Israel. They were on the factory farms for chickens um, in order to pretend that it's winter, and so that because they lay, they, uh, chickens lay in spring, right? So what they do is they replicate winter by starving them for 10 days. Literally, there's only water, and they starve them for 10 days. Because if you take a chick and you want it to give eggs, it only gives eggs after five months. But if you starve for 10 days and they think the winter's over, then they'll start doing it after 10 days. So there was a group of people in Israel that found it economically feasible to starve the chickens. And even though some chickens died, the ones that lived would start laying eggs immediately, and therefore you're cutting you know, four and a half months off of the cycle. So is this considered cruelty to animals or not? There's a human concern. I want more eggs. Right? Uh, a human concern. I want uh, going hunting. Is that a human concern or not? Which we'll see, hopefully, hopefully we'll see next week. Okay? So tonight we'll talk about it in a vacuum. Right. When there's no human concern, how do we treat animal welfare or cruelty to animals? And also, a really interesting piece, where does this prohibition come from? Meaning the Gemara is going to assume that it is a total prohibition to cause cruelty to animals. Question, where? We're in the Torah, as I mentioned that. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So let's get started. Can I ask a quick question? Go ahead. Um, will you be connecting this at all to whether or not the laws of Shkita ever had anything to do with Sar Bali In passing, I will. Meaning, they're already... I believe that that's real apologetics. Right. However, the apologetics is already 700 years old. If you look in the Sefer Achinuch, which is a, a classic work of counting mitzvot in the Middle Ages, so already in the Sefer Achinuch, we're talking about the 1300s, he writes that um, the reason why we do Shlita, we'll see this next week, is because of Tzara Balechayim. Because it's a quick, rel- not painless, relatively painless death. Mm-hmm. It's a bigger question in general whether or not, and this is, even Peter Singer deals with this, whether killing animals is part of Tzara Balechayim, right? Meaning, to torture an animal is one thing, to kill it is another. So if you read Animal Liberation, he actually makes that distinction. He says, I don't want to talk about killing animals. I'm only going to talk about torturing them. Mm-hmm. But, uh, not only, but I'm saying his primary concern is torturing them, not, not killing them. But we'll talk about that next week. Right. I guess if it is apologetics, which is why, at one point, I said, said with a showhead who also said it was apologetics, but I don't kind of really remember like how... Well, Paul, I'll, give you, I'll give you one example of the problem here. Or you don't, you don't have to do it now, but yeah. I would love to like have your kind of... So that's next week. That's, that's next week. Yeah, that's next why week. Why it would be a 
holiday. That's next week. And then we'll move on to some of the fasting, hopefully before the... We'll talk a little bit about fasting and also a little bit about meat consumption in general. There's very, some very strange things that are about meat consumption and who can consume meat and who can't. So we'll, we'll talk about that. Did you say that there's one day that you're not going to be here? Yeah, it's two weeks, the fast day, which is not next week but the week after, but we can make it up. We'll talk next week about making it up okay. um, if that's possible for everyone. Or we'll do a double class if people want, one, like one of the weeks afterwards. We'll double it up, you know. Um, Okay, so the, the, let's start with, with our sources here and then we'll, we'll go through them, okay? Um, so the Torah tells us in um, the book of Shemot, it says, If you see your enemy's ox or his ass going astray, you should bring it back then. Now here's the second point. If you see the ass of the person that you hate, and we'll see why that's relevant, that you hate the person, but let's say I see my enemy's ass breaking under its burden, Torah asks, can you possibly not help him? Or rather, you have to help him. So here you have, in the book of Shemot, you have a pasuk that tells us that if I were to see my friend's donkey who is, uh, who is bearing a burden and it is breaking under the burden, you are required to unload that burden. Right? You're required to do so. And it continues in the book of Tvarim. It says, Lo You cannot see your brother's ox or his sheep driven away and hide yourself. Rather, you have to bring it back to them. This is the mitzvah that we call Hashavat Aveda. Hashavat Aveda means returning lost objects. There's a Torah commandment to return a lost object, right? It's in the first set in Shemot also, but there is a Torah commandment that you're required to return a lost object. And then it continues, Vimlo karov if your brother is not near you, v'lo yedati, v'lo where you didn't know him, v'asafto you bring the animal into your house, v'yayimcha, and he stays with you, this animal, adrosh so the Torah tells you what happens if I find uh, your donkey and, uh, and uh, you're not going to be on business for six months, so I keep it in my house and give back to you at the end of six months. Now I can charge you for the upkeep, right? But the mitzvah of Hashavar Aveda means that you have to return the animal um, to your friend. You also do for his donkey. You also do for their garment. Anything that they lose, that they will lose, and you find it. You can't hide yourself. Then it says, You should not see your brother's ass, O Shoro, or their donkey, or their uh, uh, cow, falling down in the street. And you will hide yourself from them. Hakeim takimi mo. You should surely help lift them up again. Okay. So the Torah is telling us two distinct halachot as far as this is concerned. Number one is if you see the animal breaking under its burden, or if you see it falling on the, der- on the way, you have to help the animal out. Okay. These mitzvot are called prika. And teina, okay. So, um, let me write this down on the board. One mitzvah is called prika. Prika is unloading. And the teina is loading, okay. 
And the Gemara here is going to assume in the Sechet Ba'amitziah that these are two separate biblical commandments, right? One is to unload the animal, and the other is to load it again, right? Let's see. So if you look here, and you could, I have the English in parallel as well, the Gemara says the following. It says, Mitzvah min ha-Torah lifrog, Okay? So the Mishnah says, according to one opinion, that there is a mitzvah in the Torah to unload, but not to load. So the Gemara says, "My aval loliton, ilayma aval loliton kla, maishna prika dechtiv azov tazovimo tiinanami haktiv hakem takimimo." So the Gemara says, "How could the Mishnah say that there's a mitzvah to unload, but not a mitzvah to load? Both." Both mitzvot are written in the Torah. How can you say that there's one that one is a mitzvah and the other's not? So the Gemara says, no, El. Rather, what this is what I meant. Mitzvah mina Torah lifrok bechinam, velo liton bechinam, El abeschar. So the Gemara says, no. There is a mitzvah from the Torah to unload the animal, even if you're not going to get paid. But to load the animal, you have to. You, you can even charge to load the animal up. And Rabbi Shimon says, no, you have to do it for free. So let me repeat that again. The Gemara says like this. When it says there's a mitzvah to unburden, but not a mitzvah to load, it means that there's a mitzvah to unload, even if you're not going to get paid, but to load the burden back on the animal, the person doing so has the right to charge the person who's asking him to do it. Okay? And then it says, Tanina Lahazutan Rabbanan, Prika Bechinan, Tina Beschar. Rabbi Shimon Omer, Zova Zova Bechinan. Okay. The Gemara then asks, My Tamayu de Rabbanan. Why is it that the rabbis believe that unloading the animal you have to do for free, but loading the animal you can demand payment for? So the Gemara answers like this. The e salka datcha k'rabbi shimon, because if the rabbis were to assume like Rabbi Shimon, who says that both of them have to be done for free, lichto rachmana teina, the lobai prika, the anamina, uma teina the lepe tsar balechayim, the leka chisarum kis chayav, prika the ipa tsar lebalechayim the chisarum kis lo kol shekin. Ela lemai hilchata katve rachmana lo merlecha prika bechinam teina b'schar. So it's like this. The reason is that according to, now please pay attention, according to the rabbis, what did the rabbis say? The rabbis said that to unload the animal, you do, for, you do for free, but to load it back up, you do it, you can demand payment. So it's like this. If they were the same, like Rabbi Shimon says, right? Rabbi Shimon says, no, both of them you have to do for free, right? Both of them you have to do for free. So again, the rabbis say, so if you really were, they were the same, then all you have to do is write it one time. Why would you have to only write it one time? Because let's say all we would write is the case of unloading the animal. Right? No, sorry. Of loading the animal. If I don't get paid to load the animal, and in the case where I load the animal, you're not going to lose any money because the animal doesn't have the burden on him, right? Nothing's gonna, it's not going to hurt the animal anymore. And the Gemara says, there's no tsar balichayim, right? When is the burden? When is the pain and suffering on the animal? When the burden is on them, right? So the Gemara says like this. 
if the Torah would have told me that I can or I cannot charge to load the animal, so what's the case of loading the animal? The case of loading the animal is the animal is not going to be damaged in any way because it doesn't have a burden on it now, right? And there's no pain and suffering for the animal because it doesn't have a burden on it now, right? So if that has to be done for free, and that's a less severe case, so the more severe case of unloading the animal, right? Where in the case where you're unloading the animal, there is a financial loss because if you hurt, if this animal gets destroyed, the owner of the animal is out, right? And there is tsar balechayim because the animal is clearly in pain. That's why it's breaking onto the weight, right? So if you don't can't demand payment for the first case where there's nothing compelling you, clearly you wouldn't demand payment for the second case where there's every reason to value, right? If I can't hold you up for money in a case where, look, uh, to load the animal up, I could say, listen, you know, I don't have to help you right now because nothing bad is going to happen, right? So in this case of unloading the animal, something bad could happen, obviously I'd have to do it for free, right? And therefore the rabbis say, the reason why the Torah writes both psukim is to tell you that they are different. That there is a different halacha. When it comes to loading the animal where if I don't charge you, in the end, there's no real harm that's going to come to you because the animal's not going to die and nothing that's not going to cause any harm. That's okay. But in the case of unloading the animal, where there's the financial loss to the person because his animal is breaking, and more importantly for our purposes, the animal itself is suffering, well, then I can't charge. Then I can't charge. Because even though in the first case, I theoretically could charge because, hey, you know, if I don't do it, so pay someone else to do it, Right? But in the second case, when the animal is suffering, I have no right to stand by and demand payment. Okay? I have no right to stand by and demand payment. And that's why the Gemara says, the reason why you can't charge to unload the animal is when the animal is suffering, you cannot stand by and demand payment. You guys with me here? Yeah. Okay. And the Gemara is going to say that Rabbi Shimon really agrees with this. Rabbi Shimon agrees that when there's a case of animal suffering, obviously you can't charge. And the, Rabbi Shimon is going to say the only reason why I don't make a distinction between loading the animal and unloading the animal is because the psukim are so vague, I don't know which one it's talking about, right? But ultimately, Rabbi Shimon is also of the opinion that what? That when the animal is suffering, obviously I can't stand by and allow it to suffer. And therefore, for sure to unload the animal, I would have to not, give, not be paid. It's just, according to Rabbi Shimon, to load the animal, I also can't get paid, right? But Rabbi Shimon will agree to the fact that when you have an animal suffering, you cannot stand by and you cannot demand payment, but immediately you have to alleviate that animal suffering. And the Gemara says, and from here we learn, that Sa'ar Ba'alei Chaim is Doraita. Meaning what? That being concerned for the suffering of animals is a Torah commandment. Okay? The fact that we are so concerned about an animal breaking under its burden, that we demand you take care of it, even if you're not going to get paid, means that the idea of an animal suffering is so significant that that is a Torah obligation. And the Gemara say from here, Mikan, Tsar Balechayim, is Doraita. Okay? Everyone made clear? We'll come back to this Gemara in a little bit. What we see here then is that Sar Balechayim, the suffering and pain of an animal, at least according to this Gemara in Bavmetzia and other Gemaras, is a Torah commandment and a Torah prohibition. Okay? That on a Torah level, we are either 
required to remove suffering of an animal or at least not to inflict suffering on an animal. Right? That is a clear Torah commandment. And if you were to look in the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat here, you turn the page, the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat says something interesting. What happens if an animal falls into a lake, falls into a thing of water on Shabbat? What are you supposed to do? Okay, animal falls into uh, you know pool on Shabbos, right? I'm assuming, though I don't know, you can break the laws of carrying. Well, we'll talk about it. Say you're not. Say it's not carrying. Say it's in my pool in my house, and okay. there's no carrying problem. So, interestingly enough, and this is, shows a real sociological difference between the times of the Talmud and today, the rabbis in the Gemara have a concept called muksa. Muksa means that you're not allowed to move things on Shabbat that have no purpose. Say, for argument's sake, this tape recorder, right? So, there's no purpose for this on Shabbat, right? So, on, the rabbis in the Gemara will say you can't move it from here to here because you're not allowed to move things that have no purpose on Shabbat. Okay, why that is, is strangely enough, at least 60 pages in the Talmud dedicated to this discussion. So I don't want to get into it right now. But there is a notion called muksa. Muksa means that you're not allowed to move things that have no purpose on Shabbat. A rock, uh, a tape recorder, uh, this pen, right? And that's called muksa. And pets are muksa. Animals are muksa. Why? because we're not allowed to ride animals on Shabbat, and there is no notion in the times of the Gemara as a pet that you play with. Okay, that's not a thing in the times of the Gemara. Right? They didn't have dogs and cats in the times of the Gemara. As a matter of fact, strangely enough, the animals they would play with on Shabbat were chickens' heads. So we'll talk about that later, okay? Yeah. It's, it's, well, it, it's gross, but, uh, you know, but that was, that was the... Right. Uh, what am I tell you? Anyway, so, okay, that's part A. We need Part B, this is very important to pay attention to. Part B is the following. There is a rabbinic prohibition, not a Torah prohibition, but a rabbinic prohibition of taking something, a vessel that's usable, and making it unusable on Shabbat. Okay? So the rabbis say you can't take something that's usable on Shabbat and make it unusable. Right? Okay. So turn to the next Gemara. Making something unusable on Shabbat. Meaning if I were to, uh, for argument's sake, for no reason, use uh, a, a jar, you know, of uh, like a, a pitcher for, as a toilet. You know what I mean? So aside from whatever else there is, you can't take something that's usable and make it unusable on Shabbat. Once it's filled with urine, it's disgusting. You're not going to use it anymore, right? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but it's not just. I mean, it's not just about use. No, it's it's it's, a, it's about um, sh- shifting its. I mean, it's not just about like the physical act of use, right? It's about shifting its fu- function. Function, yeah. So you can't make it un. Right, you can't. Right. We'll see. We'll. See, I just want just saying this in the background so we can see this case because this is very. This case, oddly enough, is a very strange case but a very important case. And on a lot of levels, it's actually ex- ex- exceptionally important, even though on the face of it, it's totally outside of our purview. So the Gemara says like this, Amar Rav Yehuda Amar Rav. Rav Yehuda said in the name of Rav, Behema shenafla la'amar ha'mayim mevi karim uksatot umeniach tachtah v'im alta, alta. 
So the animal falls into the pool. So what do I do? So I, I can't pull it out because the animal was... So what do you do? You take pillows and cushions and you put it underneath where the animal's feet would go in order to set up a ramp or a stairway for it to be able to leave the pool. Right? It falls into a muddy brook. Of its own volition? Yeah, meaning you're setting up a condition that the animal can, in fact, leave on its own volition. Yeah. As, that's what it says. The im alta alta means if it ascends on its own, it ascends on its own. So I, on Shabbat, would be allowed to take these, uh, you know, to take this chair, right? So the animal fell into the pool, right? So I take this chair and then I put another chair on top of it. And you can bring it because it has a purpose. Well, we'll see in a minute. So hold that thought for a minute, okay? But say theoretically, you know, the animal fell here. Sorry on the tape, you can't see this. But, so I could set this up inside the pool, right? And now then, I'm not going to do this because I'll hurt myself. But, you know, you <laughs> climb up, right? Like this, and that's how the animal can get out, right? Okay. So the Gemara says the following. Maitre. We have an objection from another source. The other source, the other bright, that says, Behemash nafla l'amanamayim, osa la parnasa b'mekoma b'shvil shalotamu. The other Gemara says, the other Brayta says, that if the animal falls into the river on Shabbos, or falls into the water on Shabbos, what do you do? You make, provide food for it so that it stays alive until Shabbat is over, and only after Shabbat is over you're allowed to take it out, right? So here you have an objection. Which one is it? Am I allowed to set up this ramp in order so the animal can leave on its own, right? Or do I just provide it with food and sustenance until Shabbat is over and then pull it out, Right? So here you have, the Gemara says, we have an objection, right? On the one hand, it says you're allowed to kind of make this ramp, make this subterfuge in order for it to be able to leave. And on the other hand, you have this other Brita that seems to be saying that you can only provide it food, but you can't actually do anything for it, and you wait till Shabbat is over in order to take it out, right? So what does the Gemara say? Parnasa in, karim it says, what is the assumption here? That you can provide food for it, but you can't actually put the stuff in the water in order to make this ramp. Sigmar says, low kasha. This is not difficult. No. The second brita is the preferred option. What's the preferred option? If I can keep the animal alive and well until after Shabbat, so give it food and drink. But if not, then, then you put the pillows under it. And here's the key point. The Gemara then says, Hold on a second aren't we not allowed to take something that's useful and make it unuseful on Shabbat? Meaning, this chair, for argument's sake, if I were to put it in a muddy brook, right? So, for sure in Shabbat I'm not going to be able to use it anymore, right? Because it's sitting there in the bottom of the water, right? And probably after Shabbat I'm not going to be able to use it anymore because it's so disgusting I'm not going to be able to use it anymore. So, isn't there a rabbinic prohibition that says that I can't take something usable and make it unusable on Shabbat, right? So why, in any event, should I be allowed to set this situation up for the animal, considering the fact that on Shabbat I'm not allowed to take these chairs, which are clearly usable, and now make them unusable, right? So the more answers, and this is very important. Savar, the Gemara believes the following. Mevatel klimehechino derabanan. Tsar balichayim deoraita. Vaati deoraita vedachirim derabanan. The Gemara says like this. No, here is the conflict of values. Making these things unusable on Shabbat is rabbinic. Right? On a total level, am I allowed to do this? Yes. It's only the rabbis who know the But the suffering of animals is a total prohibition. 
Which is more important, the Torah prohibition or the rabbinic? The Torah. So therefore, the suffering of animals is far more important than the rabbinic prohibition of making these unusable. And even though I may be violating what the rabbis say, in order to allow me to alleviate the suffering of animals, I would be allowed to do so. Here, when you have a conflict between a rabbinic commandment and a Torah commandment, when it's between these arcane laws of muksa and the suffering of an animal, so we push aside all the rabbinic concerns in order to make sure that we are concerned with the pain and suffering of this animal. And that's what the Gemara answers. Now, what's interesting about this Gemara is the following. This Gemara is assuming that Tsar Balechayim is a Torah concern. The suffering of animals is a Torah concern. It overrides a rabbinic commandment. Okay, it overrides rabbinic commandment. So the rabbi's legislation on certain laws of Shabbat is overridden when it comes to the questions of the suffering of animals. And this is a very, very striking Gemara because now it is taking this as a very serious thing. We're willing to kind of write off very important rabbinic laws in order to alleviate the pain and suffering of animals. Even, by the way, if that pain and suffering is not of our own doing, right? To see an animal suffer is something that is our concern. Okay? Any questions, comments? Clear? We're good? We're good? Yeah. So to define an animal suffering, is that only if it will die? Meaning, it doesn't seem to be saying if it will die here. But the converse is if you can't provide sustenance. So I thought like sustenance to keep it alive. So if it will die. It would seem that the sustenance really means to keep it comfortable. You know what I'm saying? That, that would be the, you know, the assumption. Right? You have to then read it back as saying so not to die because it's dying. We'll talk next week about whether or not dying is actually part of the, the concern we have for animals. It's a bit more problematic than that. I hate to be the one to tell you this. But yeah, dying may be actually not one of the concerns. Right? If you read Peter Singer, he's very into the consideration of consideration of pain. And that may, in fact, be what the rabbis are getting at. Okay. Do they not define that to leave it vague on it, purpose? It's, I, I'm, it's not defined in the Talmud as such. And when it gets to later material, the most famous example of this, just to mention it, is Rabbi uh, Richeska Landau, who was known as the Nota Behuda. He was a great rabbi in Prague in the 1700s, late 1700s. Very, very important rabbi. So he, a person sent him the following question. He said, I inherited a huge estate, and what we like to do in our estate, or what my friends or people like, would like to do in my estate, is to go hunting. Am I allowed to go hunting? Right? So his answer, actually, what would you think of the answer? So you might argue, look, it's Tsar Balechayim, right? But he answers, Tsar Balechayim is pain, it's not death. Right? When you hunt, you want to kill the animal, not, not torture it, right? So he actually thinks that Tsar Balechayim is not operative there at all. It's not a concern there at all. Tsar Balechayim only is pain, it's not death. Um, and his answer in the end is a very strange thing. His answer in the end is basically, look, it's dangerous to go hunting. And what, what would the most, if you asked your parents, what would they answer? Can you go hunting? What would they answer? Why? Dangerous. Besides dangerous, what else? <laughs> what kind of Jew hunts, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, but I'm saying, like, I, I, really, interestingly enough, I have students in school who live in Woodmere who actually, like, their parents go hunting. Like, this one kid in school's father. But it's the first time I'd ever heard of such a thing. But he actually answers the note of beauty, what kind of Jew hunts? Like, that's what he says. Like, where'd you, what, 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 
this is fun. Like, you know, what I mean? like, like, it sounds like Jackie Mason, right? <laughs> you, know, you know, but but that's his, that ultimately is his answer. Um, but what's important about that shuva is that he and a lot most people pick up on it is that he really thinks that killing the animal is not actually part of the question of of pain. Pain is something separate. But it presupposes a certain kind of skill. That's true. Yeah, it does suppose it was certain kind of skill, right? That's part of his point. I think he also. But if you kill a name, then you go back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But in but in this, in what you were saying, um, like, is there an art? Does is the Talmud assuming that one can make one's own judgment about what suffering is if the animal needs help? I would, I would, yeah, I would even, I, I mean, I'm going to think I'm going to define it the other way, is that there is a consequent, a concept in the Talmud of a animal suffering that may not, that may be above and beyond what we're actually, next. let's see the next case. The next case is a fascinating one. And how this affects the halakha is, is an amazing question, okay? Now, just very briefly, um, um, the Gemara assumes at times, and I think they studied this at Drisha a couple of years ago as like a sustained learning program, that um, oftentimes when people, people suffer, right, that is in a certain sense God's way of showing his pleasure with them, right, because uh, they call them Yisurin Shalapa, right, that God only pays attention, God is only mindful of those that are truly righteous, right? So, Gemara has this line, so let's see. So this is like this. Amar Rebbe. Rebbe said, this is Rebbe Yehuda Anasi, who was the editor or the redactor of the Mishnah. Chavivin Yisurin. Suffering is precious. Kaba Aleha, or Alei, place our Shnei, Shit Bitsamrita, Bitsamirta, Vesheva Bitsaparna. Vamrila, Sheva Bitsamirta, Vesheva Bitsaparna. So Rabbi Yudanasi said that I want to suffer and therefore for, he suffered for 13 years. Six of them he had kidney stones and seven he had scurvy. And then those that say no, the opposite. He had kidney stones for six years and scurvy. And so, whatever it is, okay? But whatever, between six and seven years he was suffering with kidney stones and scurvy, okay? Then the Gemara says, Ahurai Debei Rebbe Hava Atir Mishubur Malka Rabbi's house steward was wealthier than King Shepherd, right? He was a very wealthy man. And nevertheless, Kar Hava Rami Kista Lachyuta Hava Azal Kala Bitlata Mile. When he placed fodder for the beast, their cries could be heard for three miles. I mean, he was so wealthy, he had so many animals, that when he would put the food in front of them, you could hear them for three miles already, from how, how much how many animals there were that were running for the for the for the food. And nevertheless, And nevertheless, he would aim at casting right when Rabbi Uranasi went to the bathroom. And nevertheless, Rabbi Uranasi's pain, the pain in his voice was so loud that it could even be heard by seafarers. Meaning what? Meaning that Rabbi Uranasi's steward would try his hardest to feed the animals when his master would be going to the bathroom so that no one would hear the screams from his kidney stones or his scurvy. And nevertheless, despite the animals going crazy from being fed, his pain and suffering was so great that you could hear it over the animals and even out at sea. You could hear how much screaming Rabbi Yudanasi was doing from these Yisurim. 
And then, but let's keep going. Vafil hachi, but nevertheless, Yisuri de Rebbe Eliez, Elazar de Rebbe Shimon, Adifimid Rebbe. The Gemara then says something strange. The Gemara here, I, it picked up with a very, it's a very famous Gemara, um, but it says that the suffering of Rebbe Elazar, the son of Rebbe Shimon, was greater than Rebbe's suffering. Why? Deal Rebbe Elazar, Rebbe Shimon, me'avabau, me'avahalachu, but de Rebbe, ayadeimasabau, ayadeimasahalachu. Now, what's the Gemara saying? The Gemara's saying like this. Even though Rabbi Yudanasi had these sufferings, tremendous suffering, and his pain and for God, right? And this is for another class. I'll give another class about this. Okay? Nevertheless, the suffering of Rabbi Yehuda, the son of Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Lazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon, was, was greater. Why? Because Rabbi Lazar, Rabbi Shimon, was purely suffering because God wanted to bring him closer. Whereas Rabbi Yudanasi was suffering as a punishment for something he did. What did he do? Now here's an amazing story. What did Rabbi Yudanasi do that caused the suffering to come to him as a punishment? Hahu Egla, there was a certain cow. This cow was on its way to be slaughtered, right? So this cow was being led to the slaughter to be shechted, to be used as meat. Azal Talya Lareshe. So the calf was being led to slaughter and it broke away and tried to hide itself under Rabbi Hudanasi's cloak. So you had this cow and the cow was knew he was, what was coming, right? Like, like the chicken I was telling you before, right? This cow knew what was coming. And it ran away and it tried to hide under Rabbi Hudanasi's cloak. And what did Rabbi Hudanasi say? Amar lay. Rabbi Hudanasi said to him, Zil, go. Lekach Natsarta. This is what you were created for. Stupid cow, right? What do you think? We, we put you in a feedlot. Why do you think we put you in a feedlot? Not for your own good, right? So the cow was crying to Rabbi Yudanasi, and Rabbi Yudanasi was heartless and said, listen, this is, what you were, this is your point, the purpose of life. Right? Why are you crying? You know what I'm saying? And the Gemara says, Ho'el v'lo kamarachim leite aleha isurim. The Gemara says, God said at that time, since Rabbi Yudanasi had no mercy on this cow, we will bring suffering on him because to show him what real pain and suffering is about. Gemara then continues, and based on a certain incident, Rabbi Yudanasi's suffering went away. What happened? Yomachad havakan kakansha amte de Rebbe. To Rebbe Beta, one day Rebbe's maid was sweeping the house. Habashaje be kurkash karkushta the kakanshalu, and there were some weasels or rats lying in the house, and she wanted to sweep the rats away. Right, it's like uh, the brother's camera's off. Right, the father liked the, the the rats in the house. And so so the, the the maid was trying to get rid of the rats in Rebbe's house. So what happened? Amarla. Rabbi Yudanasi said to this, to this maid, Shavkinim, leave him alone. Ketiv, the Pasuk says in Tehillim, Merachem aval kol God's mercy is on all of his creation, all of his creatures, right? And therefore, what's Rabbi Yudanasi saying? He's saying, leave the rats be. What do rats do? They come into the house looking for food. So if we really want to imitate God, God's mercy is on all his creatures. 
These creatures are also God's creation, so you know what? Leave them alone, let them be. Rachamav al God's mercy is on everything. And therefore, since Hawal Murachim, and since Rebbe had mercy on these rats, Murachim now left pity on him, and the suffering left. What do you make of that story? What do you make of this whole matter? Forget about the suffering aspect. Is this in any way instructive to us? Is there anything practically that we can do with this Gemara? The Gemara that has Rebbe being both in unkind because of the fact that he's telling the cow, look, what are you crying for? This is what you, what you think, you know, this is what life's about, baby. And on the other hand, saying to his maid, you know, leave the rats be, let them be, God's mercy is on all his creatures. Is there anything you can do with this? Formatively, if I wanted to live a life, is this a teaching that I should live my life according to or not? And what would that teaching be? Yeah, anyone? Um, you could say that, I mean, you, you could take it to the extreme and say that you should handle the other. I would say that you, could, that you should probably like just take into consideration animal suffering and... But I thought we already... I mean, here's the problem. This is such an extreme version, right? We know already, right? Here, what's the suffering here? The suffering is a psychological language that caused a cat, right? Like, is that really, you know, on our list of priorities? And that's number one. And number two is, what about the second one? How many of us would let the mice in our house... Look, you know, I live in Washington... When I lived in Washington Heights, we had 27 mice in my apartment, right? So I say, oh, look, you know, it's Washington Heights. It's hot, it's summer, Right? Let it be. So, is this instructive in any way? Does this? Yeah, it's about the. It's about compassion. It's not saying that he shouldn't. He's not supposed to take the cow, have pity on the cow, and take the cow back and not kill the cow. But it was, it was his lack of compassion for the animal suffering. So that even um, that we cultivate compassion for the suffering of animals. Yeah, I'll hold that thought for a minute, yeah. Uh, there is, um, I can't remember which switcher is it, there's a, a Buddhist switcher that, um, I think in the Vajrayana tradition, of like before you kill the roach, you know, like you, you send them to Tussis to heaven, um, but you don't not kill the roach. I'll hold that thought for a minute, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't think that's really instructive, but it seems that um, killing mice or whatever, or, killing, or causing suffering on a cow is equivalent to causing suffering on humans, because it's like me and I that like, you're going to get the suffering back on you, I guess, so... Right, right. That's an interesting take on it, right? That, you know, to a certain degree, Rebbe's suffering, his suffering is because of the fact that he was not careful for the suffering of, 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 this, of, of this camp. So I, I want to mention a couple of points that may arise from this Gemara. One is that a lot of rabbis pick up on is that, in fact, this may be really one of these cases where we judge the super pious according to a much higher level of, 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 you know, of, of ethical purity than we treat others. Meaning that this may be that for Rabbi Yehuda Anasi, we would have a much higher standard of what type of sensitivity he's supposed to have than for regular people. This may be a case, and we'll see a similar case um, next week, where we're, our concern is not, I mean, again, do we really, do I, I mean, if I was going to do a shlita here, do I have to say to the, to the chicken, Nebuch, I'm sorry, you know, I need some chicken soup, Shabbos soup, like, do we really have to do that? Is that really the way we have to? So there will be some that will say, look, this is a excessively pious practice for an excessively pious person and therefore they're going to be judged on a very different level um, than everyone else's. That's one possibility. Another possibility, interestingly enough, 
and we'll see this also, is that this actually is very formative for us in the sense that it is teaching us that suffering is one thing, killing is another thing, and cruelty for no reason is something very much different. So there are those that will claim that Rabbi Hudanasi's sin here is a type of excessive cruelty that was not in any way necessary, right? Uh, to give you the argument, I can argue, theoretically, that if I'm going to do research on something to save someone's life, it's research on a rat to save someone's life, it's one thing, versus if I'm doing research on a cologne to see if you know, a person sprays an entire bottle in their eye, will there be eye or is it something else, right? We all can make that ethical case, right? That there is something between a human need and human cruelty, and the cruelty, which is totally unnecessary, is something very, very different, right? So it's interesting that if you look in the commentary of the Vilna Gaon on the Shulchan Aruch, he writes, that based, we'll see on something else, that this story of Rabbi Yudanasi is actually the source that tells us that even if there is a human concern, human concern may be okay. But with, even within the human concern, cruelty is never okay. Right? You may have to torture an animal. Right? You may have to do an experiment. You may have to eat. Right? But cruelty, as part of that, is not excusable. Excessive cruelty. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that's what this, according to the Lagoon and others, that's what this story of Rubionos is teaching us. It's not for the super pious or the super great, but rather it's really for everyone teaching you a separate point, which is, you know, when you have to do something, that does not mean that it totally allows everything. There is another interesting take on this, which I will mention, which is the following. There is in the hagiography of great rabbinic figures in the 1900s, uh, the 1800s, it, 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 and I, I, it's most famous for Rav Yisrael Salanter. Hmm. So Rav Yisrael Salanter was this great figure who, who was the, the, the beginnings of the Muslim movement. So Rav Yisrael Salanter, it depends who writes the story, but there's several versions of the story. Rav Yisrael Salanter specifically had a cat. He had a cat. And why do they have a cat? I, I don't get pets at all, personally. I, just as a side point. You know, and I hope if anyone has a dog, I'm not offending them. But you know when people have the dog lick their face and then they say, well, you know, his, his tongue is cleaner than yours, right? But I don't actually ask people to lick my face. You know what I mean? Like, I don't like anything licking my face, even if it's clean. You, do you know what I'm saying? You have a dog? I, I mean, Okay, <laughs> I don't want to offend anyone. But, but anyway, so so Rabbi Sral, so but Rabbi Sral Salanter was different. Than, I know yeah. so many levels, by the way. Like, yeah. Dogs like lots of things. And, yeah. And we don't. Right. Right. Rabbi Sral Salanter. So what did Rabbi Sral Salanter? So he had a cat. Why do you have a cat? He said, part of my practice, my religious practice, is trying to imitate God. You know, Mahu Rachul Mafatarachum. Right. Just like God is merciful, so we're merciful. Mahu Erechlam. Just like He's slow to anger, so it's who we are. And Rav Shosalanzer said, if God, we believe God has racham avokomasav, has mercy on all of his creatures, so therefore I will have a cat so that I can practice taking care of animals who are below me, quote-unquote, on the food chain, in order so that I can imitate, to a certain degree, God taking care of things that are beneath him as well. So he actually would have a cat to take care of it, give it milk, the whole deal, pet it, give it a bath, whatever, um, as a way of, of, to a certain degree, practicing this virtue, um, so and that, by the way, actually, to a certain degree, actually comes out of this gemara, right? Because this yeah. gemara saying you have rachamim alivet on the rats, like leave the rats alone, let them be. What are they supposed to do? That's what rats do. You know, they eat, they eat garbage and they run around your house. That's what they do. 
Um, so this case of Rabbi Yisrael Slanter, uh, this case of, of the Gemara Masechet Balmetzia of Rabbi Yudanasi, I think, though, is actually an interesting one because it's not addressing the Tsar Balechayim issue, right? It's not because Tsar Balechayim, it doesn't invoke Tsar Balechayim, right? It doesn't say, well, the reason why he couldn't, he was punished is because he violated Tsar Balechayim. It's a lack of sensitivity that, you know, blows up into something else. Anyway. Can you comment? Um, I don't know if it's going to. Yeah. Don't if you think it's going to take us too far away. But um, the, um, the, the sufferings of um, Rav Eliezer, um, when it says that they came to him through love and departed in love, can you talk a little about the. That's a, that, yeah, that maybe is a little off. Different class. Yeah, different class. But okay. if, you, if, if you want, it's the, the previous discussion in that Gemara. This is a very famous but extremely bizarre Gemara about how fat certain rabbis were, how much they suffered, how large the penises were. I mean, it's a very long and graphic discussion in that Gemara. If you don't believe me, I believe it's 100%. <laughs> this is like one of the most famous and popular Gemaras out there. Um, okay. Which so, one is that? <laughs> 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 it's the see there, pay dollar. It's there, I promise you it's all there. And uh, it's, it's, it won't, it's an interesting question because I, I taught my students this Gemara and I asked them, why is this a holy text? Because I said, you know, we take it for granted. The Torah falls on the ground, you kiss it, right? You know, you make a seum. So why is this a holy text? But anyway, so we'll get to that. I mean, some other, I don't know when. Okay, now, as far as the halacha goes, and this is really what I wanted to deal with, and then there's one other side point I want to deal with, which is the following. If you look in the next source, is the Shulchan Aruch. Shulchan Aruch, of course, is our classic source of Jewish law. And I just want to talk about that case where we had of the animal falling into the falling into the, the river, right? On Shabbat. So if you look here, Shulchan Aruch, this is in Luchot Shabbat, it says, Behemash and Afla la'amad amayim, an animal that fell into water source. Imamayim amukim, if the water is deep, and therefore you can't provide sustenance for it. Mevi karim ksatot, bring pillows and cushions, benotein tachta'ah, and you put it underneath it, mishum tzar balechayim. Because of the suffering of the animal, even though you are making the object and rendering it unusable. Okay? Literally, it's just quoting the Gemara. Okay? Quoting the Gemara word for word, not word for word, but you know, paraphrasing the Gemara. It says that, look, you know, we have a, a rabbinic prohibition of making something unusable, but when it comes to animal suffering, we don't care about the rabbinic prohibition. Okay. Then it's the next list to the next one. Mutar lomar le'ino yehudi. Okay, here's the case. One of the prohibitions on Shabbat is that you're not allowed to thresh. There's three versions of this in the Gemara. Right? You're not allowed to take something and break the shell away and bring take the usable part. Right? You can't thresh wheat on Shabbat. You can't crush wheat on Shabbat. You can't squeeze juice on A million different versions of this, Okay? And the Gemara assumes included in this is milking a cow. Because right? you're taking the liquid out of the solid of the udder. You're not allowed to do that on Shabbat, okay? Right. On a Torah level. However, if you ask a non-Jew to do work for you on Shabbat, it's only a rabbinic prohibition, right? So the Shulchan Aruch says, you can ask a non-Jew to milk your animal on Shabbat because of Tsar Balechayim, right? If the animal doesn't get milked all of Shabbat, right, it's going to be in pain. So therefore, according to Shachan Aruch, you can milk, the ask Anon, it's only a rabbinic prohibition, 
But you're allowed to ask this non-Jew to milk the animal for you because of the suffering of the animal on Shabbat. Now, what's important about this is it is an extension of a principle, but it is not stated in the Gemara, right? It's the same principle. What's the principle? The principle is that when it comes to a rabbinic prohibition, rabbinic prohibitions are pushed aside because of the suffering of an animal, right? So the first primary case was the case where we would put the pillows and, or the, the benches underneath to let the animal climb out. And here's the secondary case, and the secondary case is telling us that to extending the principle even further. If the animal's going to suffer because it can't eat, because it's, because it, because it's not getting milk on Shabbat, you can tell a non-Jew, or mostly even maybe a Jew, to, to milk the animal on Shabbat in order so that it will be alleviated of its suffering, right? That's a rabbinic prohibition, and it overrides, and the Torah prohibition of animal suffering overrides that. Okay? So, now, that, that already is interesting, because now, what, what, what the Shulchan Aruch and, and these rabbis feel comfortable doing is saying that we don't only care about the initial case in the Gemara, Right? which says that rabbinic laws are pushed aside for animal suffering, but we care about the principle as well. And as long as the principle is rabbinic law versus animal suffering, animal suffering will always trump rabbinic law. Maybe not Torah law, because you have a Torah law versus Torah law, but clearly if it's a rabbinic law, the rabbinic laws are, far, are less important than, than animal suffering. Okay? And there is a very ironic case that the, Gemara's, that the, that the, that the rabbis are going to quote, but just hear it out, because already this is when you start to rub against human concern. In Eastern Europe, so foie gras was a staple of the diet because there were certain fats and calories that they would not be able to get otherwise. Okay, Just like in the Middle Ages, they drank beer all day. Why did they drink beer all day? Because the water would kill you. Yeah, it was calories and the water would kill you, right? So it's, you can't take, kill two birds with one stone. You get rid of the, the garbage in the water and also you get enough calories. And so like if they didn't drink beer in the Middle Ages, they would have, you and know, they nice would Right, a nice puzzle. That was right. Right, right. right. Yeah, yeah, right. Makes your miserable medieval, medieval life. Um, anyway. So foie gras was an absolute staple of the European diet for, for many, many years. Now, how do you make foie gras? Goose liver. Force feed it, correct. Now, it's what? You force feed, yeah. The reason why it is illegal in some countries, in Israel it's illegal now, so, is because presumably of a problem of cruelty to animals. What you do is you stick a tube down its throat, into the stomach, and you force feed it, okay? And that, because that causes the liver to expand, and then you kill it once the liver is a certain size. And that's how you get the foie gras. The liver has to expand. It's not just your regular liver of a, of a goose, but it has to expand based through the force feed. Okay? That's it. It's a very unpleasant process. Supposedly, uh, somebody told me that they're trying to make an ethical foie gras. I don't really know what that means. But that is... So th- this was considered a staple of the diet. Right now, it's a good question. Supposedly in Israel, you can't buy it now because they don't think it's a staple of the diet today. Right now, it's considered a luxury. And it's I, very hard to find in America. I, didn't, I think there is no kosher for in America. There used to be in Canada, and I'm not really sure if there's in Canada anymore either. I haven't had it in years. I had it, well, I had it like six, seven years ago in Israel, and then I had it like 20 years ago, smuggled in from somewhere. So that's the question of foie gras. And so now here's the question. The Gemara in the Sechet Shabbat says that there, there's a category of things that are not specifically prohibited on a Torah level, but you don't do them because we don't do these things on Shabbos. Right? This is something that the Gemara is actually concerned with. Calls it Uvda Dechol. We call it not Shabbos thing, not Shabbos thing, right? 
And one of the not Shabbos things that we don't do is force feeding animals. Right? It's considered weekday work, even though there's no prohibition associated with it. But when you're shoving the food down the animal's throat, that's not considered. That's considered, you know, weekday, not for Shabbos. Right? So here's the question. But what if the animals can only eat via force feeding? Meaning, when you have your flock of geese here, right, and the flock of geese now only eats when they're force-fed, because they can't eat regularly anymore, right? They're conditioned to that. So are you allowed to force-feed the goose on Shabbat if that's the only way they'll eat? Why? Because they'll be starving if they don't eat. Again, you say, how can they be starving to be force-fed all day? But that's exactly the point. When you're used to being force-fed, right, you know, like when your kids say, oh, I'm starving. not really starving. You know, my daughter, she doesn't get a snack at 11 o'clock, will live to 12.30 for lunch, right? But the point is, she says she's starving because I'm used to my 11 o'clock snacks. So let's say the animal is in pain if they're not going to eat the whole 25 hours of Shabbat. Are you allowed to force feed them on Shabbat or not? Well, it causes pain, so... And it's only a rabbinic prohibition, right. right. So if you look here in Magen Avraham, which is a classic commentary on the Shulchan Aruch, he says, from the Ramah, the Huadin, and it is also the case, de mutar lomar lakum, you can tell a non-Jew, and you can even do it yourself, as he says, so you can force feed the animal once on Shabbat. While you force feed them once, then they're satisfied at least till Shabbos is over. Because they can't eat otherwise. Now, here it's a little bit more of a rub. The rub is, the reason why the animal can't eat regularly is because you're force feeding them for your own good, right? You hear what I'm saying? Suffering both ways. Right, and to a certain degree, they are suffering both ways. Yeah. However, it's a, it's a very bizarre case here, right? What's the case? The case is, it's suffering, but maybe I'm allowed to make it suffer because of human need. But until that human need is met, or even while the human need is being met, it's excessive suffering regardless, right? That you've normalized that practice. Right, you've normalized that suffering. That's now their normal way of life, right? But, Magen Avram, and this is quoting the Mishnah Buru, this is this established halacha, says that when you have your flock of geese for foie gras, you would be allowed to force feed it one time on Shabbat. Because one time takes care of the immediate hunger, right? Um, even though it's prohibited, presumably, from the Gemara, but still, since it's only a bit of concern, and Sarah Balei Chaim is a Torah concern, you'd be allowed to do so. Is that analogous then to giving them the whatever, like the... Yeah, yeah, it's the same extension, the same principle, yeah. Questions, comments? Okay, so this now, now what's important about these cases is that these are all, as I said before, in a vacuum of human concern. Okay, all of these cases are, except for maybe this last case, cases where animal suffering in no way impinges on any human concerns, right? Meaning, let's give, uh, well, we'll see, but let's give our case with the eggs, right? I want more eggs at a cheaper price, right? So can I starve these animals, you know, for 10 days? So that's already a human concern, right? Meaning that eggs are expensive, and I want cheaper eggs, right? Or foie gras. Actually raising the geese for foie gras, I want foie gras, or maybe I need foie gras, depending on where you live, right? So that may be a human concern, right? Meaning, what's interesting is it didn't say, oh, by the way, why are you raising geese by force feeding them, right? Never entered into the discussion. So what we'll talk about next time, and we're not done yet, but I'm just going to mention this. What we'll talk about next time is the real problem. In a vacuum, there's no problem, right? But the problem becomes what happens when it does rub against the human concern. What happens when there is a human need? Then how do we treat the question of Tsar Balei Chaim? When is it considered, when is, when is it actually considered cruelty? Despite what I might need or slash want. Meaning, 
A fur coat is warm, right? It is warm, and it is fashionable. So can I, you know, skin a live mink to make a mink coat? Well, there it rubs against human concern, right? Or I say even more problematic: Hasidic men wear fur hats, right? Now that doesn't keep you warm. My brother has one. My brother's Hasidic, so it doesn't. It's not so warm, right? Just I mean, because it sits on top of your head, not underneath it, right? So you know your ears are freezing, but you. So is that a human? You know, okay. So I'm Hasidic, so we wear fur hats. So what kind of? How could I go to shul in Bar Park if I don't have a fur hat on? Is that enough of human concern to say that, okay, so therefore we can kill the mink alive, skin the mink alive, because hey, you know, that's a human concern, right? So the, the, that's the rub. And the rub comes from, as we'll see next time, I just want to read this now and just get, think about what this might mean, a very strange source. So here's the source, and then I want to, there's something else I want to do, we're not done yet, but the end of the Gemara in the Sechah Kedushin, <laughs> the end of the Gemara in the Sechah Kedushin, is a discussion of what type of job should a person have? Now, you know, what type of job should a nice Jewish boy or a nice Jewish girl engage in, right? So where does this come from? So the Gemara in Masechah Kedushin at the end is concerned with men and women being secluded together. So the Gemara says that if a man is teaching kids, he shouldn't be secluded with the mothers, and if a woman is teaching kids, she shouldn't be secluded with the fathers, and then it starts a discussion of what's a good job, what's a bad job, right? Okay. And in the context of this, it says the following. So look on the last source on the page. It says, Rabbi Shimon, and here's the English on the next page, Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar Omer. Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar says the following, Ra'ita miyamecha chaya va'ov Have you ever seen a wild beast or a bird with a craft? Meaning, you ever see a, an ox or a chicken get up in the morning and put on their briefcase and go on the Long Island Railroad? Never seen such a thing, right? Metro North doesn't, doesn't exist, Right? However, they somehow are managed to, to get by, right? The chicken gets by, right? And those animals are only created to serve me, right? Meaning that if I am higher on the food chain than these animals, they don't have to work, and now they seem to get by, right? They're there to serve me, and somehow they don't have a job and they get by. And my purpose is to serve God, right? So I should definitely have a job that provides for me without any suffering, right? The chicken doesn't say, oh, where's my next meal coming from? Right? Or the, the, the cow doesn't say, you know, oh, you know, Shabbos is coming, I don't have enough money in the bank, you know, how am I going to feed my kids? He doesn't say that, right? So if the cow is created to serve me, and I'm created to serve God, so if I'm on such a higher level of food chain, shouldn't it be that I should be able to support myself much easier, right? Rather, he says, Ella shahoreti ma'asi, but because I acted evilly, I sinned, I destroyed my livelihood. Now, what Rav Shemin Elazar is saying is one thing, which is that really, since my whole purpose in life is to serve God, and those animals' purpose is to serve me, if they have it easy, I should have it easy, but since I sinned, that's why I don't have it easy. Okay, it's a, some sort of a pietistic statement, or some sort of statement about, you know, his sins, right? But what many rabbis pick up on is actually a very, presumably, side point, which is, the halo lo nivreti el that the animals were only created to serve me. What do you make of that statement in a vacuum? 
if you isolate that statement. Well, I... Yeah? I'm sorry. Go ahead, yeah. No, 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 no. What do you make of that statement of vacuum, yeah? I mean, I do think it's pretty clear in Jewish thought that although... Um, we have to be compassionate for animals. There is a clear hierarchy in Jewish thought that human beings are above animals, and that clear hierarchy is shown here. Right, and it means to say that you know that, like we were saying, all of this stuff is nice as long as you know it doesn't impinge on me at all. But once it starts impinging on me, well, you know, like let's be honest, there's a food chain for a reason, right? And the post, many rabbis, we'll see this next on on, uh, on next week will interpret this statement as actually being like, you know, a formative statement. That there is a hierarchy, that hierarchy is there for a reason, and when we discuss any of these questions about human concern versus animal concern, bear the hierarchy in mind. Okay? Yeah, it's really good, it's really fine and dandy, as long as it's not impinging on the the point that they're created to serve me. Mm-hmm. And therefore my concerns are always more important than yours. The hierarchy is fine. I'm not like arguing with that issue. I just this the argument here is, is stupid to me. Well, the but, argument, but, um, like, oh, and and my question is more like, is the is it the argument hinging on that the there's no parnasa for the animal? No, there is parnasa for animals. Well, why does it say? Like but they don't have a job. They don't have a, but a craft. They they do kind of. They do have a job. Right, but they don't have a job. He lays the eggs. That's their craft. That like would be their creation. That's right. Here he means a job in the sense of like. That's omanu. Here it means a, a job. No, not I mean. Here it means a job in the sense of like a nine to five job. You know what I mean? You know, you wake up in the morning and you know you, you get on the railroad and you go to your office and you punch in and whatever it is. You know. Answer phone calls for all day. I guess but, argue, but animals, because, especially in that age, all had nine to five jobs, which is why this seems. Well, I will say one thing. Hold that thought for a minute. There are those that make a major distinction, actually, between animals that do have nine to five jobs and animals that don't have nine to five jobs. Uh-huh. Meaning, for argument's sake, a cat did not have a job ever, right? Cats don't do anything. They just sit around, right, right. and shed. Right. Okay, no offense to any cat owners here, but they don't do anything cats, right? That's the appeal, I think, of the cat, right? But the farm. Oh, so there are those, right. Now, there are those that will, and we'll see this very important next time, there are those that will make that exact distinction. Look, an animal that does work, as a matter of fact, let's be honest here, when the Torah talked about the animal bearing, breaking under its burden, it was an animal that works. Right. It may be that there even, and this is very important, there may even be a hierarchy of animals out there. I want to come back to the first Gemara we were dealing with because there's already, a, I'll give you another interesting case that Gemara had. If you turn back to the first page, turn back to the first page, that third source. So look at this Gemara here, and it's also in the English. Let's see, listen to this one. It's the second to last line. What page are you on? The first page, first page. Second to last line says, Tashma, come in here. Ohev lifrok visone liton. So let's say the following. I walk into Grand Central Station and I see two things. I see my friend has his animal breaking under the burden. So I have to unload my friend's animal. And I see my greatest enemy who needs to load up his animal. Let's repeat it one more time. My best friend in the world has his animal, Nebuch, Yankel the donkey, he looks like he's had a bad week. And he looks like he's not going to make it, okay? And my biggest enemy 
has to load the stuff onto his animal, right? Which one should I do first? So the obvious answer is to unload, right? If the vandal's breaking, right? You should unload it, right? So listen to what the Gemara says. The opposite of what we would have thought. Mitzvah bisone kidei lakof and yitzra. If my best friend's animal is breaking under its burden and my worst enemy needs to load up his animal, so what am I going to want to do? I'm going to want to help my best friend. One, because his animal is breaking. B, because I want the other guy to go to hell, right? I hate him, so, you know, let him figure it out on his own. But the Gemara says, that's my Yitzhahara talking. That's my evil inclination talking. And really, what's the goal? The goal is for me to overcome the evil inside me. I should try to help my enemy first, right? Because what's the greater ethical challenge to me? Is to help my enemy. So therefore, the Gemara says, even though my friend's animal is breaking under his burden, what is primary is me helping my enemy load his animal, and only after that do I unburden my best friend. Now, problem, the Gemara says, but what about the fact that one is a case of tsar balechaim, right? My friend's animal is breaking under its burden. Gemara says, "Afilu Nevertheless, more important to break your yitzhara and to take care, work on the ethical responsibility to the person that I hate, than even the tsar balechaim that's happening to my best friend's animal." So here you have the Gemara, the same Gemara that recognizes that we can push off rabbinic laws, is also saying that when I have a personal ethical ethical problem that I need to work on, that takes precedence over the suffering of an animal. This is not this is a, a separate type of human concern, right? What kind of human concern are we talking about here? Here's a human concern where it's not it's, it's not I need to eat, it's not I need uh, I, I can't afford to live, it's not I need. I need a, a, a fur coat in the winter in the middle of Russia. It's not that. It's if I help this dying animal, this, not dying, but this animal that's breaking under its burden, I'm going to pass up the ethical possibility of helping an enemy primar- primarily. So therefore, the Gemara says that second one is more important even though the animal is suffering, right? Can we also assume in this case that like, both men are, are able-bodied? So that but it's clear they need help. They need, that yeah. they both need help. Right, they need so help. The, like, both are trying to attend yeah. to their animals, in which... Right, and they need your help to do it's it. Not, yeah. I mean, it's not comparing, like, what if the animal was alone suffering? Right, and okay. The, the Gemara does deal with that possible case. We, we, yeah. But it also goes with just the general, like, thing I struggle with all the time, which is, like, people give more money to animal shelters than they do to, like, human beings in need, like, as an example. So, right. you know, that right. there's something to be said in terms of a hierarchy. Right, right. And we're, we're, again, of, like, our relationship with humanity versus with and again, I, I, would, I would even take this, No, I would take it even a step further. Look, I, I've had this issue. I remember that when people, when people were horrified about what was going on, say, in Rabashkin's, in the plant, Rabashkin plant. So I remember that, and you remember this as well, that where I lived in the five towns, no one cared. No one cared. And now you could say, well, that's because it's the five towns. And okay, maybe that's true. But, but I, no, but in, in defense, if, I was thinking about the following. If you are, you have three kids, so it's going to be 75,000 miles to send your kids to school, plus another 15,000 miles to send them to camp, right? Plus, the, you know, it's more expensive to live there because all Orthodox Jews want to live there, right? By the time you're done with all the expenses, you know, if the price of meat went up 
double. So you get to a breaking point for how much people can bear in order to maintain a certain lifestyle. There is a breaking point. And I did think that there were, again, what, what, and, and it's a, this is, you know, the rub, this is for me, like, to go back to the beginning, right. uh, this is the ethical rub, right? Is that, like... They're using, like, illegal, they're not treating their... Yeah, they're using illegal immigrants, right. yeah, exactly. Right. They were overworking them, whatever it is, and the guy went to jail, you know, was, was going to jail for whatever, uh, 200 right. years, whatever, whatever that is. But the point is, is that I'm not sure that I, sh- it was, I wasn't, I, I'm still not sure that that was an issue that I really could bring up. Because, you know, I, I, I understand that, you know, this is a real financial question. But as you add more and more and more and more and more financial burdens for people who live a certain lifestyle, at what point do you, look, you know, if the eggs, that are, the total free-range eggs, really not free-range like, you know, they open up a little box and they never leave, you know what I mean? Real free-range, they can walk around, the happy chickens, whatever, it's cost, you know, four fifty a dozen. And the regular eggs cost a dollar fifty dollars. Okay, so how many eggs do you use a week? Okay, you want to take the three dollar. But at what point do you add, 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 add to get to a breaking point? And I'm totally sensitive to that. I, I agree with you 100 percent on that. Um, that there, there there can be a breaking point. But the question is, is if you want to have an ethically sensitive life towards animals, right? Within within obviously within a certain reason, right? Where do you kind of where can you take from both sides? Right. No, that's true. Although I would say, like with Rubushkins, like it's a totally different situation because now you're talking about human beings. Well, ah, so this right? is the, right. Here's the other question. This, this, this is another thing I want to get to, and this is really the, the the bigger question. If anyone can think of an answer, please tell me. One of the issues you have with Rubushkins is something else. I remember people being incensed at the Orthodox Union, and they said, "How could you give a hashkafa? How could you give a certification to this business?" Look what they're doing to their employees. And what did the OU turn around? The OU turned around and said, look, you, that is not the question we were being asked. We were asked very specific questions. Was the animal slaughtered crop properly? Did the animal have trefo? Was it soaked and salted properly? Okay? And we answered those questions. And at a certain point, I think that they're both right. Meaning that one of the things that a kosher consumer does is, to a certain degree, assumes that by buying kosher food, they're reneging themselves of any responsibility further than that. And the certification agent can turn around and say, I don't know why you're making this expectation of us, but I never agreed to this expectation. You know, if the Iowa Attorney General wants to break into Roboshkin's plan, and, or not break in, but you know, wants to press charges on Roboshkin's for the ethical treatment of their workers, that's their right and their responsibility, right? But I'm not asked to do that. And We'll see that next week with the chicken case, because the chicken case is an interesting case. Because even, and this is the big problem, even according to the rabbis um, who say that this business of starving the animals is tsar balechayim, right? No one will say that the ch- eggs are not kosher. The eggs are kosher. You may torture the animal, but the eggs are kosher. Now, what does the consumer do? Right? I, they're kosher. I know that they're okay in that sense. And, but on the other hand, you know, they're, they're tortured animals, right? So this is, you know, that's a major problem as far as, you know, where the intersection of these two things are. And, you know, and, and, and it's another question. Is there a, a critical mass of people that would then turn to the certifying agency and say, listen, we're not going to buy food unless you can make certain guarantees. This is what the, the Uriletetic people who are here all day are trying to do. And one can question how successful they've been. My point being that 
I have never heard of a person that cares whether they have an Erlutzetic certification on their restaurant. But maybe I've traveled in the wrong circles. But Orange juice sometimes care. Sometimes. <laughs> Right, right. But I'm just saying, generally speaking, you know. And again, forget about that. I mean, let's let's be honest here. Does anybody know how the workers at Zabros are treated or at Fairway? But I mean, it's really not. It's it's not really within the. I think probably the what this class is about. But ultimately, you know, you're talking about a couple of different things, right? Because we're talking about you know how we when when there are things that Jews have control over, we can say you know this is okay. You but again, the question is, do we have really have control over that? Meaning, when well, you we can say, you know, like what standards do we hold ourselves up to, like as rabbis, as leaders, as people who are like given certain, like you know, when people have been entrusted with certain. Right, but that, that, my own question is, you know, it, what it, is it like? Is it really okay for any one of us? Like, if you walked into a plan, I, would you walk like this, or would you be like, you know, looking around? And if you saw something, what would you do? I'm right. not really sure. That's what I say. It's yeah. like large. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, it will it directly impact this class because the question will yeah. be, you know, which we'll talk about next week, you know, right. whether or not Tzar Balechayim actually impacts the status of the animal at all, which the answer is probably not. Right. But that being said, um, just one quick thing, last five minutes. Can I just make Go ahead. Um, but also this last text, the, this one, mm-hmm. um, I mean, they're also, he's also sort of playing with this whole um, trope in different ways of, of, of being free and being yoked. In what sense? Um, well, for, I think in the, in a um, the sort of a meta level, um, he talks about a, a wild beast or a bird. I mean, those are um, those are. I mean, they're 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 free. I mean, they're right. Free. I mean, they're, and that's right, and that's what I should they're, be. They're 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 free. Um, um, but, so there's this freedom, but yet they're you know they're yoked through service, right? Um, um, and, um, and and then the the idea of here, you know, I, 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 we're created to serve, so we're we're yoked through right. the you know, having been brought um, into existence. Yet he's sort of bemoaning uh, the fact, but yet I should be, free, you know, yet, yeah, right, right. You know, I should be free and all of that. So there's sort of this, uh, but because I, you know, the Yetzara, whatever it is. Sin or you know, kind of then I've lost that. Um, I mean, and then this sort of gets into that. I mean, the whole uh, trouble of then being sort of right. to be able to work into the land and to service. And yeah, I have to think. I, 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 I have to think about that. Yeah, right. Level, 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 right, right. No, I, right. I would have to think about that I, a little. Um, the one point I just want to make one last point, really wild point, and then we will uh, we will pick up with this on, on next Tuesday. One really fascinating thing. So the next thing I photocopy for you, and it depends on which photocopy you have, there's different versions of this, but let me just tell you what this is. There is a rabbi in Jerusalem, an interesting man named Rabbi Usher Weiss, very fascinating man, Hasidic guy, grew up in New York actually, and he's all over the place in Israel. Anyway, he's an unbelievable, he's, they say, I mean, he really, like, if you ask him about anything, he just goes, you know, without preparing, he's amazing. So here, and I just think there's only three minutes left, so let's just, um, he asked the following question. Where is the source of Tsar Balechayim, right? We said it's Doraita. Where does it say it in the Torah? Right? We, again, most Torah commandments have a pasuk attached to them, right? They have a, a verse attached to them. Where is this source? So he has like a whole, whole bunch of possibilities. One is our Gemara of unloading the burdened animal. Another possibility is that the Torah does not allow you to uh, muzzle an animal that's working in the field. You have to allow it to eat. Another possibility is um, that we know that um, 
Bilam hit his his ass, and they said, "Why are you hitting him? Right? Why are you hitting me?" Um, and the Sefer Charedim says it's because we have to imitate God, just like he's more kind, more kind, right? He has an amazing source here, which I just think is amazing. He quotes and he says like this, Sefer Yom Truah, which is a commentary on the Gemara Masechet Rosh Hashanah. He says the following. He said, Moshe, Moses is punished. Why? Hitting a rock, right? So he says that that's the source of Tsar Balichai. Meaning what? That Moshe is beating something for known purpose. And therefore, when the Torah prohibits you from, when the Torah punishes Moshe, it's saying that you are not allowed to beat something or harm something for no reason whatsoever. Now, what is amazing about this is if you read the real, the modern animal rights, animal rights literature, they will go out of their way to say, of course we're not talking about a rock here because a rock has no consideration, right? It's only about pain, right? So uh, Peter Singer will go out of his way to say, well, of course a rock has no consideration. A rock doesn't feel any suffering. And this source is saying, well, of course a rock does have consideration. Every piece of creation, everything created in this world has consideration and therefore... That, oh, that we don't see that in some of the things that we read. No, for sure not. There's for sure no, not. No, um, sort of, I don't know, ontological interpenetration at all. I mean, the hierarchy of uh, ontological hierarchy is very, very separate. Right. This source, I don't know what to do with it. I'm see, I do not know what to do with it. If you were to take this to its natural extension, you know, you'd be like the James, you're walking around with a with a with oh, a mask gosh. on, yeah, yeah, so that you don't breathe in any bacteria. Yeah, it's it's and it's it's really the most out there thing. Now, again, you take consideration. Look, Moshe's allowed to eat. He's allowed whatever. There's things you're allowed to do. But it's an amazing source here because he's taking this so far past what is regularly assumed, right? And making the ethical imperative towards not just towards animals, towards everything. Animals are included, but rocks are included also, and rivers are included, and sticks are included also. So that is just close apart all the animated right everything right I don't even know if it leaves room for anything it's so crazy right but yeah well can you just say that it's more your attitude that like that it doesn't really matter if the rock is feeling pain or the animal is feeling pain but it's your own attitude and that's why like in the other source we saw well that's others others say the motion sin is his his anger right no but that you should like you shouldn't hit a rock if you don't have to. But but that's not what he's saying. Here the consideration is for the rock, right? That's the interesting thing. Here the consideration is for the rock. Because you're causing something pain. That's the whole point. So anyway... He says here, right? He says here, "V'sefer Yom Tshuva Katav D'Galfina." We learn Tzar B'Alechaim D'Chiv V'Dibarta Al Sala, etc. It's right here, Vav, right over here, on this page. Okay. So next next Tuesday we will deal with that separate question, 